0: Morning, everyone. Welcome. Come on in. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. Yay. Uh, There are handouts in the back, as usual, if you'd like to follow along. Uh, We have completed versions of the prior weeks um, on the website And if you would like some paper copies from the prior weeks, I have some up here that I'll make available if you would like the paper copies. So we have that for your reference. Let's go ahead and pray uh, as we uh, begin our time. Father, uh, we love you, and uh, you are worthy of praise, honor, and worship for who you are. As we continue to look into your attributes this morning, I pray that you would increase our understanding of you, Uh, not just to know about you, but that we would know you more and become more like you. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we are in week five now of our study of the attributes of God. And we're going to make a little shift from these incommunicable attributes to what we call our communicable attributes, those that God does share with us in part, not completely, but in part. And uh, he, uh, he will express these perfectly uh, as opposed to us uh, because they are in His nature. And the, the two that we're going to explore today are His holiness and His justice. Um, and for justice, I'm also going to include this attribute of righteousness along with it uh, because it's very much related to His justice. We'll, we'll learn a little bit more about that over time. And then this order that I'm taking through these attributes has no special significance. There is no prescribed hierarchy of how we go about studying God's attributes in Scripture uh, because he has all of them at all times. So uh, at any point that we insert ourselves to study his attributes, um, it, it has no particular order. But after thinking about how to perhaps in a human way go through these attributes There's one that I think would be really good for us to focus on as it relates to his communicable attributes, and that's his holiness. God is described as holy many, many, many times in Scripture. It's one of the most common adjectives that's used to describe God. Uh, The Puritan Thomas Watson says, Holiness is the most sparkling jewel of his crown. Now, we don't want to elevate one attribute over another, but in human terms, one cannot help but express the value of his holiness. And his holiness runs throughout all of his other attributes as well, of course. Uh, one commenter said that God's holiness casts its luster upon all the others. Stephen Charnock said, I have this in your handout. If every attribute of the deity were a distinct member, holiness would be the soul to animate them. Without holiness, his patience would be an indulgence to sin, his mercy a fondness, his wrath a madness, his power a tyranny, his wisdom an unworthy subtlety. Holiness gives decorum to them all. Decorum here doesn't mean polite or in good taste, as we might use in our vernacular, but rather fitness uh, or appropriate. It, Charnock saying that God's holiness makes all of his other attributes fitting. So the definition that I have here for holiness, again, remember, these definitions are not inspired. God's word is inspired. These definitions are man's best attempt to do this. But my definition that I have here for holiness is God's moral purity, absolute perfection, and complete separateness from sin and evil. His moral purity, absolute perfection, and complete separateness from sin and evil. All of God's attributes are perfect, as well as we discussed back in week one. But if we look at how the angels respond to God in Scripture— we get a glimpse into how important His holiness is. Of all the attributes of God that are mentioned in Scripture, only one is magnified to the third degree. God is holy, holy, holy. This phrase appears two different times in the Bible, uh, in the Old and New Testament. The Old Testament, Isaiah 6-3, and the New in uh, Revelation 4-8. Uh, both times it's exclaimed by heavenly creatures. And both times it occurs during visions. Uh, one by the prophet Isaiah and the other by the apostle John. Isaiah, in uh, Isaiah six three, he says, And one, a seraphim, called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And John, in chap- chapter Four verse eight of Revelation says, "And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come." This repetition, "Holy, holy, holy," it's a literary technique uh, to bring emphasis, uh, that brings extra attention to its readers. R.C. Sproul famously said, the Bible says that God is holy, 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 not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, 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 that the whole earth is full of his glory. His holiness defines all of his other attributes. His love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. His grace is a holy grace. Steve Lawson says, Everything about God is marked by his absolute holiness. This one characteristic is the sum and substance of his entire being. So, if you were to think of what would be the first thing that comes to mind when we describe God, a very appropriate way would be to call him holy. He is all these other attributes, but he is holy, holy, holy. It's often used in the Bible to describe him. It's most obviously used to describe the Holy Spirit over a hundred times. Jesus addresses God as Holy Father in John 17, 11. Jesus himself was called the holy child by the angel that visited Mary. And Peter calls Jesus the holy one of God in John 6, 69. So lots of references to God's holiness. So some characteristics here of holiness. We start with number one, that God is set apart. He is set apart. The the first time the word holy is used in the Bible is when God speaks to Moses in the burning bush. As Moses approaches, God says in Exodus 3, 5, Do not come here, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. This Hebrew word for holy means separation, with the idea of cutting something into two and then separating a piece for a special purpose. God himself is set apart from everything that he's made. He's distinguished from it all. Moses says to Pharaoh in Exodus 18, 8, 10, there is no one like our God. And later in Exodus 15, 11, he says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? And of course, the answer is no one. No one is like God because he is set apart and he is holy. Number two, God is transcendent. He is transcendent. Similar to being set apart. God is exalted above his creation. This word transcendent means exceeding usual limits, surpassing. In Isaiah's uh, vision of God in Isaiah 6-1, he saw him sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. The ESV says he was high and lifted up. Isaiah got a picture of the holiness of God in his transcendence. And King David declares the transcendence of God in Psalm 22:3. He says, "You are holy, O you who are enthroned above upon the praises of Israel." So here David is linking God's holiness to his exalted transcendence, being enthroned. Turn over to Psalm 99 with me. Psalm 99 This is one of several enthronement psalms, uh, which connect God's holiness with His transcendence. Psalm 99, and we'll look at verses 1 through 3. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, and He is exalted above all the peoples, let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Holy is he. God is enthroned above all things and all people. He's transcendent in his holiness. Number 3, God is majestic. He's not only set apart and transcendent, he is majestic because he is holy. He's superior in his grandeur, in his splendor. Moses says in Exodus fifteen eleven that God is majestic in holiness. This word majestic means glorious, noble, great, indicating God's his superiority in his kingship. Psalm 8, 1, David declares, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And you recall back in Isaiah 6 1, where Isaiah sees God sitting on his throne. That latter part of that verse says that the train of his robe was filling the temple. In that time, the greatness of kings was shown by the length of their robes. The greater the king, the longer the robe. Uh, Isaiah describes God's majesty and that his robe filled the temple. It, there was no room for any other ruler because he filled the temple. It is astonishing and overwhelming to think of such a vision of his majesty. So number 4, God is awesome. God is awesome. And Moses says in Deuteronomy 7:21 that God is a great and awesome God. Nehemiah describes him as the great and awesome God multiple times in his book. And Daniel says the same thing in chapter 9, verse 4, O Lord, the great and awesome God. For those who've beheld God's manifested holiness, their response is to his awesomeness. Many times they're overwhelmed and they're filled with dread. Back in Isaiah 6, we see various responses to the holiness of God, do we not? The seraphim cried out, as we heard, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Verse 4 says, The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then Isaiah responds in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was devastated. The King James Version says that he was undone. God's awesomeness is alone enough for such a response. But we also see here this immediate realization that Isaiah has of his own unworthiness. And and the unworthiness of his people. Do you think he had a clear understanding of how unlike God he was at that moment? John Calvin said Man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. He's majestic and he's awesome. Number five, God is flawless. He is flawless. Another key component to His holiness is His moral perfection. He's sinless without no blemishes, without any blemishes. All of His thoughts and actions are pure. But as a result, He is never indifferent to sin. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Jesus says, Matthew five forty-eight. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here he claims God is flawless in his character. Being flawless, God can never make a mistake. He will never render a wrong verdict. And again, here we see just how we are not like him, given our sinful nature. Thomas Watson says this for saints holiness is like gold in the ore imperfect their humility is stained with pride he that has most faith needs pray lord help my unbelief but the holiness of god is pure like wine from the grape it has not the least dash of tincture or of impurity mixed with it he is completely flawless Number six, God is convicting. He's convicting. So God's holiness includes the fact that He exposes all sin hidden in darkness. This is a part of His holiness. John says in 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. There's no shadow of impurity with Him. His holiness shines into every dark place and reveals everything that is unholy. Remember Peter's response to Jesus after their miraculous catch of fish in Luke 5.8? It says, but when Simon Peter saw that the catch of fish, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He was in the presence of holiness and was convicted. He realized that he was in front of In the presence of the God-man. Like Isaiah's experience, he became aware of his own sinfulness. An overwhelming conviction to the point of not being able to bear it. The Apostle John had a similar response in his vision that he records in Revelation. He sees the glorified Christ in chapter 1, verse 17. And it says, he fell at his feet like a dead man. This conviction is to the nth degree. These examples of believers reacting to the holiness of God um, are um, indicative of the difference between what we are as humans and the perfection of God. But for unbelievers, it will be even more so. Matthew Henry said. No attribute of God is more dreadful to sinners than His holiness. So number seven, God is unapproachable. He is unapproachable. Because God is absolutely holy, He's unapproachable by redeemed, sinful humanity. We also know that God is opposed to those who are sinful in His sight. David says in Psalm 34, 16, the face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Sinners cannot enter into the presence of a holy God with their impurity. In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was put in place to demonstrate that God is inaccessible by human people. Instead of a, a priest must bring a sacrifice to God on behalf of the people. This priest served as a mediator between the people and God. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. He lives in perfect holiness that is far too pure for the impure to enter. Now, you might be asking, If God is holy and transcendent, how can we approach Him and have a relationship with Him as sinful humans? We've established the fact that He is perfect and flawless and cannot be in the presence of sin. The short answer is, it's impossible to approach Him on our own. On your own merit, you can't. As we discussed earlier, this sacrificial system in the Old Testament required a mediator, a high priest to stand between the people and God, offering sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And, of course, this high priest was not perfectly holy. Instead, it pointed to something better, right? Our perfect high priest, Jesus Christ, who offered the perfect sacrifice of himself once for all to make the way for sinners to approach God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. For those who repent and believe on Christ for salvation, they're made approachable to God through the work of Christ. God sees believers at that point as holy and righteous, but not because of anything that they've done on their own merit, right? It is because of Christ. And that's the gospel. And that's where we must start, is we start with Christ. Because all those other things that we just covered are true, but they are bad news for those who are left not able to approach a holy God. J.C. Ryle says, do you want to be holy? Do you want to become a new creation? then you must begin with Christ. You will do nothing at all and make no progress until you feel your sin and weakness and run to Him. He is the root and beginning of all holiness, and the way to be holy is to come to Him by faith and be joined to Him. Christ is not only wisdom and righteousness to His people, but sanctification too. This message of the gospel of Christ starts with unbelievers for salvation, but... It's also for believers for ongoing sanctification and growth in Christ. So a few takeaways here on holiness. Number one, let this understanding of God's holiness drive us to a humble and reverent awe of him. We should do this for all of his attributes. bring this up more than once, right? When we pray to God or we're talking about him, we should take the cues of Moses, Nehemiah, and Daniel, who addressed God as great and awesome. It starts with realizing how unlike God we are due to our fallen nature, but those of us who are believers were made holy in His sight through Christ. Number two, God has called us to be holy, just as He is holy. It, that is His command from 1 Peter 1.16. And multiple times in the Old Testament, we hear that. Be holy, for I am holy. Because He's holy, we should desire to be conformed to Him to be holy. Our response does not stop with just reverence and awe, but it requires an active response. Pastor Kevin made this suggestion to me for this point, is that we put work clothes on holiness. Make it practical. But what does that look like to pursue a holy life? There are a couple sides to working out holiness in our lives, negative and positive. On the negative side, we're to be hating sin and evil. The, the Lord says in Proverbs eight thirteen, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. John Owen said famously, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Romans six eleven. even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. So we're not only to be hating sin, but we're also to repent of it. For unbelievers, this is a necessary step in salvation, of course. It's also a necessary step for believers in sanctification. is an ongoing repentance. We're to put off the old self. Ephesians 4.22 says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. So, understanding the wickedness of sin and And what we are to put off is really crucial. J.C. Ryle said, wrong views about holiness are generally traceable to wrong views about human corruption. If we don't get that right, it can lead to uh, wrong views of the character of God. Now, on the positive side, we're to put on the new self. Right? continuing in Ephesians 4, verses 23 and 24, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new self, which is the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We're to be transformed in our mind, Romans twelve two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, some practical disciplines here get in His Word. Stay in His Word. Agree with what you're reading. Sit under solid teaching and preaching. Be built up by other believers. Examine ourselves and ask God to continue to sanctify us. Those are means to help us in our growth in holiness. So, in summary, Romans 12:9 Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. It's a battle. It will always be a battle on this side of heaven. And it, as we heard earlier, it starts with Christ. He says in John 15:5, apart from me you can do nothing. So holiness comes from Christ, so we must remain in Christ. Now, on the top of the next page, I provided a couple resources that I highly recommend for you. One is a book and video series from R.C. Sproul called The Holiness of God, a classic work where he describes the character of the holiness of God. The, the video series, it's six 30-minute sessions. It's free. Highly recommend it. Uh, and the book is a classic as well. And then another great resource on personal holiness is J.C. Ryle's book called Holiness. uh, Another classic. So I highly recommend you look into those. Okay. That is an incomplete and insufficient coverage of God's holiness. Let's move on to his attribute of justice. God's justice I've defined as his impartial judgment and vindication of his righteousness. His impartial judgment and vindication of his righteousness. This concept of God's justice and righteousness are very closely related. In fact, they're often used synonymously in Scripture. But there is a distinction between the two. Uh, We can think of justice as being God's outward actions that are always in accordance with His righteous nature. And His righteousness is His absolute moral integrity. It's His adherence to what He has declared to be right. And that's the standard by which all things are judged. Or put another way, God's righteousness is the basis of His justice and justice is the application of his righteousness. R.C. Sproul says, God is at once righteous and just. The two concepts are so closely connected, though they can be distinguished. They may not be separated. In biblical terms, true justice is always according to righteousness. Justice is not determined merely by an abstract legal code or even by the collective decisions of the law courts. Justice is weighed by the standard of righteousness, which in turn is measured by the standard of God's character. So his justice is linked to his righteous character. So we've established that God is omnipotent, he's all powerful and sovereign, he has all authority. It's important to know that he's also just and fair, he doesn't abuse his power. Uh, but human history has been very different, has it not? it shows us that absolute power can corrupt absolutely uh, unjust leaders with unchecked authority on earth many times results in injustice but this can never be brought about against god's judicial authority he never acts in a way that's unjust in a word he is righteous because of this he always does what is right in dealing with mankind He never misuses his power. He never rewards those who transgress his commands. Now, on the positive, as a righteous judge, he never forgets his people who keep his word. And he remembers those who suffer for doing right. In the end, every verdict that God reaches is right in perfect harmony with his righteousness. So let's look at some characteristics of God's justice and righteousness. Number one, God is judge. That's an easy one. We'll start there. God is judge. We need to establish the fact that God alone sits as the moral judge over the entire universe. There are many judges who preside over courts all over the world, handing down rulings according to the laws of each land, and that's good. They're moral instruments in the hands of God to uphold justice and to maintain order. But there's only one ultimate judge, and that's God Himself. There's no higher court to appeal to. 1 Samuel 2.10 says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He executes perfect justice over all things. Psalm 50, verse 6 says, The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. And within the Trinity, all judgment has been given to the Son, Jesus Christ. In John 5.22, Jesus says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus also has been given authority to execute judgment. He says in Matthew 25, 31 and 32, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So Jesus left no question about his authority to judge as the God-man. So number two, God is just. He's not only the judge, but he is just. He's perfectly just. Abraham declares in Genesis 18, 25, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? This word justly here means to render a judgment equitably or fairly. All of God's decisions are fair and just. Moses says in Deuteronomy 3, 32, 4, For all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteousness and upright is He. So He never renders an unfair verdict. Stephen Lawson says, in all His deliberations, He always does what is right. He never rewards sinful behavior, He never punishes obedience. God renders righteous justice because He loves what is right. He loves it. Psalm 33 5 says, He loves righteousness and justice. It's, God, it's God's holy nature to love what is right and what aligns with His perfect character. Psalm 89:14 says, "Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Number three, God is impartial. He's not only just, he is impartial." So when God administers His justice, He plays no favorites. He doesn't change standards based on the person or the group. Moses says in Deuteronomy 10, 17, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. When King Jehoshaphat was rebuked for his injustice, He confessed that the Lord has no part of unrighteousness. When Job accused God of injustice, Elihu responds in Job 34, 12, saying, Surely God will not act wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. He treats everyone equally under the law. In the Acts, we see Peter responding to the news of Gentiles coming to faith in Christ In Acts 10.34, he says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Paul says in Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. As for God's judgment, Paul says he will discipline the disobedient fairly. Colossians 3.25, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. That reality should spur us to a reverent fear of God, leading us to desire His salvation in Christ and to please Him and to praise Him for being utterly righteous and just. Number four, God is rewarding. He is rewarding. Another quality of God's justice, He dispenses um, rewards upon believers. This is called his remunerative justice where he rewards people for their faithful kingdom service. Isaiah 40.10 says, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And those who are persecuted for righteousness, Jesus responds to this in Matthew 5, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven is in, is great. God will make right the suffering that they've endured for His glory. Turn over to Matthew ten with me. Matthew chapter ten, verses forty one and forty two. Jesus here assures us of rewards for being sacrificially serving. Matthew ten. Verses 41 and 42. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. This kind of service often goes unrecognized by men. But God knows, and God remembers, and it will be rewarded in heaven. Now, on the other hand, number five, God is avenging. He's not only rewarding, he's avenging. While he rewards the persecution endured by believers in their service, he avenges that mistreatment inflicted by evildoers by inflicting vengeance on them. In Deuteronomy 32, 35, the Lord says, vengeance is mine and retribution. And as we know, this avenging may not happen in our lifetimes, but it will eventually. Revelation chapter 6, where John is shown the seal judgments, in verses 9 through 11, we see this fifth seal, which was for the martyrs. It says, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell in the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So God will certainly avenge the blood of the martyrs. And later in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, John records the multitude saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. God will settle all accounts in the end by his justice. And number six, God is punishing. Not only does God avenge the evil inflicted on the righteous, he also administers punishment on sinners who break the law in disobedience. This is a necessary part of his justice. This is known as his punitive justice or his wrath. We're going to look more closely at God's wrath in particular next week, so I encourage you to come back. Please come back. <laughs> but I'll mention it here as a component of God's righteousness and justice. He, he doesn't do this out of spite or some arbitrary reason. He, he does this out of his holiness and his righteousness. He can't make a law, establish a penalty, but fail to execute the punishment when the law is broken. If he were to do that, what would that make him? It would make him unjust. He would no longer be a righteous and holy judge. Uh, Dutch theologian Louis Burkhoff said, The primary purpose of the punishment of sin is the maintenance of right and justice. God's punitive justice was first pronounced in the garden. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, we first see God establishing a command to Adam and Eve. He says the Lord God commanded the man saying from any tree of the garden you may eat freely but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. But of course we know this command was broken. Genesis 3 records this event plus the punishment handed down by God. Not only did they get driven out of the garden and suffer the curses that he levied they also experienced death physically. And spiritually. And of course, this is true of all people today. Proverbs eleven twenty one says, Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished. Ezekiel eighteen four, the soul who sins will die. In the New Testament, this truth is equally clear. Paul says in Romans six twenty three, the wages of sin is death. And James tells us in James one fifteen when lust is conceived it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Sin always results in death. Now, if we were to stop there, it would be sad news. But wait, there's more. Number seven, God is justifier. He is justifier. Since God is the only one who's perfectly righteous, only he is able to provide the righteousness required for sinners to be made acceptable before him. No one can provide their own righteousness. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 3.12, there is no one who does good. There is not even one. But God made a way. He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, who took on humanity, living a perfect life, and He died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice. And for those who place their faith in Christ, the punishment... Of sin was uh, still paid, but not by us. Rather, it was paid by Christ on our behalf, right? That's the great exchange, right? Our sins transferred or imputed to Christ, and then Christ's righteousness transferred or imputed to us. Second Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This declaration of righteousness by God, it's called forensic righteousness. It, it's a legal declaration by God that a sinner is righteous in his sight, not because of inherent goodness in the sinner, but because of the perfect righteousness of Christ that's been credited to them through faith in him. Romans 3.26 says that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's not only just, but he provides the justification for those who believe. Steve Lawson says, God is perfectly just in that he administers perfect justice for sin and the death of his son. If he is to receive his elect, they must be declared righteous. Thus, God is the justifier of the unrighteous when he imputes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to the one who believes in him. And that, my friends, is the great news of the gospel. The righteousness that comes from God is received by faith and faith alone. At the moment of faith, God's justification is granted to the believer. Romans 3, 21 and 22, Paul says, But now apart from the law the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. It's true that we are not saved by works on our part, but we are saved by works. We're saved by the perfect work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Now, You may be asking, how can God be both just and loving without compromising one or the other? This might be another philosophical question, but it came up in my mind as I was going through the study. God's justice and love are not in conflict because his justice is grounded in his love and his love is expressed through his justice. And the ultimate expression of this is what we just discussed. It's demonstrated in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. In his love for us, he accomplished his justice by providing Jesus as a sacrifice to bear the wrath that we were due, the justice that was required for those sins. Through that act of justice was the most loving thing that has ever happened, both justice and love. So, a couple takeaways. One, be thankful that, not, that God is not only just, He's loving, gracious, and merciful to forgive and provide righteousness to those who trust in Christ. Right? Those who've repented and trusted in Christ, they're justified before the Father. And they're objects of His love and grace and mercy. Thomas Watson said, If thy heart has been broken for and from sin, Thou mayest not only plead God's mercy, but his justice for the pardoning of thy sin. Both justice and love. Number two, trust that God in his perfect wisdom and sovereignty will make all things right. He's always faithful to his promises. He can be trusted. For any injustices that we see or experience ourselves, we know that God will make those right. He also gives us this guidance through Paul in Romans 12:19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We're to trust in him. Number 3, the justice and righteousness of God calls us to live holy and obedient lives pleasing to him. Like the takeaway earlier that we're to be holy, We're also to live justly and righteously. Micah 6.8 He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So, in closing, the, the attributes of God's holiness and justice and His righteousness, they're foundational to an understanding of His character. But also, what is required of us as individuals. We are to be holy as he is holy. And we're also to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. But that's a standard that none of us can meet. But God did not abandon us. He made a way through Christ. And that gives us hope not only for our eternal destiny, but also for here and now. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for being perfectly holy, just, and righteous, and for being our justifier by the atoning sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. What a glorious thing, declaring righteous those who place their faith in him. I pray that you would humble us by these truths and also encourage us to live in a way that pleases you.